0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. This week, I speak with Parker Palmer, author of the bestseller The Courage to Teach and Let Your Life Speak, listening for the voice of vocation, as well as being the founder of the Center for Courage and Renewal. We discuss Parker's perspectives on what he calls an undivided life, seeking wholeness in ourselves, our work, and our world. Hi, Parker. Hi, Tammy. I want to talk to you today more about the undivided life. And there's so many ways we could talk about all of the various divisions that people feel that I feel, but I want to start off hearing what you have to say about the division that I think many people feel about their work life and that I work for money. And what I really wish I was doing today. You know, the undivided life. Well, I feel divided. I'm going to work for money. But that's not what's really in my heart. What's in my heart, though, is you know, riding my bicycle through the streets, or hiking around a mountain, and you know, obviously I need money. This is a a clear division in my being. How can I resolve this?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I've always felt that, that the divisions in our lives are on a number of levels, and some of them are built into the nature of things and need to be held as creative tensions uh, in a way that keeps opening us to new possibilities, while other divisions, as, as in the division between my own integrity and my actions uh, in the world, we need to work on closing those divisions as much as possible. And I think one of the inevitable divisions of life Um, has to do with the fact that uh, we never will achieve in our embodied form on this earth um, what is at every moment the truest desires of our deepest hearts and I think one simple way to put it is that that's something that a grown-up person embraces and tries to work creatively with as much as possible. Uh, The money question um, has a lot to do, of course, with some important decisions that we all have to make about how much money we think we need and what's the difference between our needs and our wants. And sometimes when when we can sort that out and Discover that we don't need as much as we thought we needed or that there are other values in life that, that are equal to the value of money for us, these, these questions start in their own slow way to kind of untangle and even resolve themselves. I, I'll give you a concrete example from my own life mm-hmm. because when I was in my mid-30s, and had a PhD from a major university and a a teaching job that was paying me very well at another major university and a promising career in academia, I decided to get off the track in a variety of ways that I was called to uh, by my own sense of vocation, by my own sense of meaning and purpose, without going into details I will say that one of the features of this getting off the track was that I suddenly found myself doing work that was very meaningful to me but for which I was being paid a fraction of what I had been making at the university um... less than fifty percent in fact of what I had been making at the university I had at that time three young children and I had grown up in a family where um, my parents helped support me significantly in college, and I expected and hoped to do the same for my children. And I was I was stricken with a sense of, of guilt and real real bafflement about what was it that I was doing to myself and to them to have gotten in a situation where it looked as if I couldn't build up their college bank accounts to the point where I could give them the same kind of support that my parents had given me. Well, I don't mean to make a very painful and serious wrestling match sound easy, because it wasn't, but what I eventually came to understand was, in in fact, fairly simple, The the simplicity on the other side of complexity, and that was that my children then being three, four, five years old, if I were to spend the next 12 to 15 years doing something that I really hated in order to make a lot of money so that I could send them all to college, and then when they got to be age 18 and decided not to go to college, which they might well do, I would hate them as well as the, the years I had spent doing work I hated. And I didn't want that to be my witness or gift to their life, put gift in quotes there. I wanted instead to model a life of following passion and integrity uh, as possible. And one of the interesting consequences of that decision, which I think in the long run panned out very well, was that in addition to my day job, working in an intentional educational community where the agenda had to do with peace and justice and economic sharing, um, I started taking on uh, a life as a writer and speaker, which I don't believe I would have done had I been comfortably ensconced in the university in order to make a little additional money that i could then set aside for the education i wanted to provide my children in other words by making a decision on on behalf of of my purposes and intentions one of the consequences was the opening of a vocational track that eventually grew larger and larger and proved to be profoundly mine as a writer and a traveling teacher, speaker, workshop leader, etc. So, I don't again mean to say that these are easy things, and and and, and my own story is my own story. It, it does not generalize necessarily into anybody else's life, let alone everybody else's life. But I have talked, of course, with many many people. Um, because of my book, Let Your Life Speak, Listening for the Voice of Vocation, about this dilemma. And the one place where I always feel confident in coming down is simply this, that if, if you have this question alive in your heart about a great gap between the work you're doing for money and and what it is that you would truly want to do with your life, and I don't just mean going out and having some fun this morning, but I mean a purposeful engagement that you feel would satisfy your deepest heart. If if you're holding that tension in a significant way, don't stuff the tension, don't sit on it, don't suppress it, don't sweep it under the rug. Do that great thing that Rainer Maria Rilke calls us to do in letters to a young poet when he says to a young man who is wrestling with questions like these um, you're asking very important questions but they're not questions that yield to easy or immediate answers indeed they may not yield to conventional answers at all but if you will live the questions Rilke famously says if you will wrap your life around this question if you will not Sweep it under the rug, but embrace it as a tension that you're being called to hold. He says, You may find some distant day, without even knowing it, that you've lived your way into an answer. And because I've experienced that in that process in real life, I always feel confident saying to people, If this is truly your question, um, then that might be good. Council, that might be a good path to walk
0: when I hear a, a phrase like the undivided life I think oh there's some kind of goal that Parker is pointing to potentially where there's some point in time when I won't feel divided anymore and it sounds to me more like you're saying that we have to understand that creative tension is always part of our life and to, to make a distinction between creative tension and, and what it means to really feel Quote unquote divided. And I'm wondering if you can elucidate that a little more.
1: Yeah, I, uh, you have it exactly right, Tammy, from my point of view. I mean, I'm 70 years old, and I still have to make on a fairly regular basis decisions about areas of my life where I feel divided. Um, and so I don't imagine that, and, and it's been a long time since I imagined that I would ever arrive at perfection in in this aspect of my life or any other aspect of my life I actually think that perfection is um, a kind of nightmarish wish-dream um, if you think of it socially uh, the people who promise perfection on earth are actually the totalitarian dictators who, <laughs> who want to run everything themselves um, and are offering false a false promise Um, in order to seduce people into some sort of political or social pathology. And I feel the same way about spiritual teachers who who promise perfection. I, I have never felt that wholeness, that human wholeness, for example, a word that has meaning for me, had anything to do with perfection. Wholeness has to do with embracing the whole of who you are, which includes your shadow as well as your light, It includes the broken parts of you as well as the whole parts of you. Um, It has to do very much with that great line that Leonard Cohen has been singing in recent years. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Um, So when I talk about um, living divided no more or the decision to live an undivided life, I'm talking about a decision that recurs again and again in different contexts and in different guises it's not a once and for all decision it reminds me a little bit about of of the of the sort of um, liberal christians i know who used to be asked by their fundamentalist brethren um... have you been saved and they would answer something like, yes, again, and again, and again, and again, and now I need it again. If salvation means wholeness, then it's something that we're constantly having to um, move into, or work toward, or uh, embrace as a possibility in ourselves in all of our complexity. And as I said a moment ago, I think it's one thing to Think about the divisions within myself that I do have um, some control over, such as a, a radical division between what I genuinely believe to be the good, the true, or the beautiful, and something I'm being asked to do that violates all of that. that that's that's a decision that I'm I have to stand up. Under and walk into and sometimes make with with courage but there's a there's also a great gulf running down the middle of history I I, I I talk about it as the tragic gap, the gap between the reality that's going on around us and what we know to be possible from our own experience. I mean, we know for example that it's possible for people to engage in economic sharing in a way that leaves no one poor while everyone has enough. Um, We look around and we see a society in which a few people have way more than enough, and a lot of people don't have what they need. There's this tragic gap that we have to occupy and act in and keep trying to close. But the idea that there will someday be a world without racism, without poverty, without various deep gulfs uh, between us, is, it seems to me, a fantasy. And the, the problem with fantasies is, is not that they're, that they're not pleasant, it's not that they're, they wouldn't be worth aiming for, it is that when they don't come into being... Lots of people get off the train. They lose their motivation for continuing to do this work. The the best people I've known in anti-poverty work, in work against racism, for example, any form of injustice, are people who will say time and time and time again, what I'm trying to do with my life is not going to be achieved in my lifetime or my children's lifetime or my grandchildren's lifetime but the legacy i want to leave is that even though we don't achieve perfection these are the things we must be working on and making incremental progress as we are able not only with our words but but with our actions and so i don't see this in terms of perfection and i think it's dangerous counsel perfection is because it, it lets people down in the long run and and we lose energy uh, for the kind of commitment we need to make on a on an ongoing basis i i can't think of any great social activist rosa parks martin luther king jr nelson mandela dorothy day of the catholic worker Name name your hero or heroine um, around the world who wouldn't say something along these lines. The work is never finished, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it. On the contrary, it's the the bigger jobs that we are given as human beings that 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 won't be finished while the little jobs that are have measurable outcomes. And can be finished next week or next month or next year. They need to be done in, in some way, but they are not the great callings of our lives. I mean, one example I like to give in the world of education, where I've spent many years as an activist uh, working on educational reform, is that it's a doable task to get kids to jump over hurdles uh, called standardized tests. It's a doable task to raise test scores in a way that leaves a lot of people nodding sagely and saying, looky here, we've improved our education. But raising test scores and getting kids over those hurdles is a very different thing from educating a child, which is something for, toward which one can only plant seeds, pour a lot of love and devotion into it, a lot of human nurture and probably not live if you're a teacher to see its ultimate outcomes I, I know very few adults who were touched by good teachers who wouldn't say I wish Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so were still alive so that I could thank them for seeds they planted that only now 30, 40 years later have begun to to come to full flower.
0: That capacity, Parker, that you're pointing to, to either stand in the tragic gap when it comes to a social problem that one might be dedicated to solving multi-generationally, or to just live with the creative tension that we experience all the time, that capacity to be with that gap or that tension, what do you think are the qualities that you've had to develop and that you've seen other people develop just so you so you can be with that tension
1: that Mm -hmm. gap Mm -hmm. well that's a wonderful question as all your questions are because that that puts a finger on the on the work that I think we we need to be doing I think we need to be educating people in our schools and colleges and universities for example and helping to form people in our religious communities, to take another example, in ways that that allow them to grow their own capacity to hold these tensions. So the qualities that I think we need to inculcate are are these, and I'll, I'll list a few in no particular order. But I think the first one is is patience. Um, we, we need to help kids understand that the, the job of learning um, does in fact take a lifetime and that means experiencing the intrinsic rewards that come with learning itself rather than simply waiting for the ultimate reward quote reward of being able to jump a hurdle and say I got an A on the test and if you look at good teachers Uh, or you look at good religious leaders, I think one of the things they do is to make the journey itself so inviting and so inherently rewarding that people want to take that journey and they, they want to take it into deeper reaches, into greater mysteries, not simple questions on which they know they'll find the answer soon, but more complex things that they enjoy pursuing because there is enjoyment in the pursuit itself I think that good teachers and good religious leaders are not in the business of giving people answers the way so many do but of teaching young folks and adults as well that there is inherent excitement in getting a hold of the right question and living your way into it. So patience is one thing, and I think that a second virtue that we can cultivate to hold tension creatively comes when we experience the fruits of doing exactly that. So let us take, for example, a situation in a classroom where a question is being debated, or in a religious community where a decision is needs to be made, and in both situations you have the yeas and the nays, you have the pros and the cons, you have people who take position X and position not X, and the, our typical way of of I think working in a situation like that is that after about 15 or 30 minutes we get we get so anxious about the tension between the yeas and the nays that we want as it were to call a vote literally in a decision-making situation to say let's vote and get this thing over with let 51 percent of the people decide uh, where we should go on this question or in an educational setting uh, we call in some authority like the authority of the teacher's voice or the textbook um... to tell us or pretend to tell us what the answer is but there's a different way to do it in both situations and roughly speaking that we have a name for that which is a process called reaching consensus and reaching consensus means that you keep holding that tension entertaining both the yeas and the nays in a way that respects all the voices Um, while teaching people that there are certain ground rules certain disciplines to this kind of inquiry um, without which it goes off the track um, respecting all the voices letting people question in an honest open way a non-judgmental way what it is each other is saying what do you mean by that where does that come from in your experience how might my experience link to that how might my meaning link to that and to keep doing that in a way that miraculously um, as time goes on opens up a third possibility for folks who thought that that they had the only two answers in town and that those two answers were contrary to each other. So I think if you if you think of creative tension as literally, the pulling left and the pulling right of the mind and the heart you can you can think about that as a tension that, that cracks something or breaks us open if we are if we are brittle if, if we insist on the rightness of of where we stand if we're rigid and unwilling to move or if we're more flexible than that you can picture that tension that pulls us right and pulls us left as pulling us into something larger, into a greater capacity to see more of the truth or to see the truth in a, in a different way. I think lots of us can point to examples of that in our, in our own lives where once we believed something to be absolutely true, but by exposing ourselves to situations where folks in an open and generous way honored what we had to say but also um, introduced other ways of looking at the situation we end up a while later with a new understanding one very simple way of putting this is to say that in lots of situations if the ground rules are clear and they're honored in the observance all of us thinking together are smarter than any one of us thinking alone. And, and that's the basic principle of consensus. It's a communal principle that says that no one of us has a corner on the market of truth. But at the same time, it's not enough just to say one truth for you, another truth for me, and never mind the difference. Because down that road lies a kind of radical and, and I think, mindless, and often heartless relativism um, and chaos, but if we can hang together in community and experience these these tensions as, as things that pull us open rather than break us apart, then I think we can get somewhere. So, the virtue of a flexible heart and a flexible mind, which can be inculcated by a different way of doing education or a different way of helping people on the spiritual journey is another thing I think much, much to be recommended. In higher education for centuries, there, there have been names for this. We've talked about the importance of a liberal education as an education that helps people entertain contradictory ideas, mm-hmm. hold paradoxes, live with ambiguity w- without getting trapped in what what some have called paralysis by analysis without getting trapped in that sort of mindless relativism that that just shuts a person down and thrusts you into isolation but always holding these things in communities of discourse and dialogue you know we can we can project that in a much larger way which is what I'm attempting to do in a book that I'm just starting to take notes for, we can project this on our national political situation. The, 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 the essence of democracy is not that it, that it promises a resolution, a final resolution to all things. Show me somebody who's talking about a final solution, and I'll show you a Nazi, a fascist, a totalitarian um that again is a nightmarish wish dream the wish dream that everything would be settled and resolved my way but in our democracy the genius of it is that it holds it it's designed to hold tensions in a way that keeps opening us to larger truth it's it's one of the reasons that democracy historically has as winston Churchill famously said been the worst political system ever devised except for all the others <laughs> um, and and has constituted very often the seedbed of, of human progress and and growth um, even though our our movement towards this has been slow we we have at least um, healed one piece of our nightmarish and evil American legacy of slavery and racism with the election of an African-American president, which, Mm -hmm. when I was born in 1939, was inconceivable to anyone, I think, in our country that this would happen in our lifetime. That doesn't mean racism has been overcome, but but it means that the democratic Process has functioned to open us to new possibilities and new truths that were once regarded as impossible. So the sadness about the breakdown of our democratic institutions, for example, the sadness and, and I think the, the righteous anger that we ought to feel when the executive branch of government uh, overwhelms the legislative branch of government, and starts declaring war, for example, uh, on its own hook, the tragedy of that that ought to distress us and anger us and move us to action is that there is the breakdown of a tension, of a creative tension-holding system which was planted right at the heart of our democratic society in order to keep opening us to new possibilities. Um, so these these are not simply, I think, abstract philosophical concerns. I think they they come to roost in our everyday lives. And to loop back to your original question, we need to be thinking long and hard about the virtues, what Alexis de Tocqueville called the habits of the heart, that we need to be helping people develop in places like schools, colleges and universities and religious communities, as well as other voluntary associations to keep alive the the inner life of virtue that makes for folks who can hold tensions in a creative way not only in their personal lives but in their public lives
0: what i notice as you're talking is it's you know so intuitively obvious that whether it's personal inner conflicts that we have to honor both sides or whether it's in our democratic process and something new and creative can come from that what what i feel often is some kind of criticism that people are like wow that's a lot of inner conflict for one person to be having tammy you know in terms of comments that i'll get about my own life or in a social sphere like let's just drive this to a conclusion please you know enough Mm -hmm. and that there's such an intolerance for conflict, that kind of tension in our world, and I'm wondering, where do you think that comes from?
1: Well, I, I think that's my experience too. That when you talk with people about conflict, or better yet, just sit back and watch how we deal with it, I think what you just described is exactly what happens. People show high anxiety in the presence of conflict, which is which is why the you know the typical business meeting can tolerate. But I think I think ultimately we we create all these myths that lead us to do things like wanting to get this tension over with right now in order to maintain and pump up the illusion that we have more power than we have. And I think part of the inner journey is is a journey toward relaxing into the fact that I have some powers and I have a responsibility to myself and uh, to others around me to be deeply thoughtful about how I use those powers, the powers of my own inner responses, um, and how they impact on other people. But there's much that's not in my control, and I must learn to do a life-giving dance with all of that, a dance between my power, fullness, and my powerlessness. I sometimes think of of good living as being akin to what it means to be a good farmer. Um, If you go back a hundred years before agribusiness um, started exercising its form of the pretense of control, doing things that are destroying the topsoil and ultimately, I think, creating more ecological problems than, than they, are, they could conceivably solve. If you go back a hundred years, to be a good farmer meant having the skillful means to do all of the things that are in your power to do, to prepare the land properly, to steward it in, a, in an ongoing way, to plant the right kind of seed at the right time, in the right places, to cultivate it with all the skill that a good farmer has but then to acknowledge and not lose heart in the face of the fact that you have no control over the weather that you have no control over cyclical changes in the soil and the environment itself that there are powers larger than your own at work with you must learn to dance and that the
0: As I listen to you, Parker, I uh, have two responses, imagine that, Um, diametrically opposed. One is, of, of course, I feel a sense of relaxation and openness when I think about accepting what I don't have control over. At the same time, I think, if I really took this in, what Parker's saying, would I become just like a loser? Here in business, we're having consensus processes, and we're not really getting things done in a quick time frame. and. In my personal life, I'm sort of more easygoing, and, you know, before you know it, I have less money, less success. Yeah, I I'm am I'm, I'm, might be a little happier and more relaxed, but, you know, I'm kind of in the loser camp.
1: Well, I'm, 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 I I'm, guess at age 70, I don't know who a loser is anymore. Uh, <laughs> um,
0: but what do you mean by that?
1: I, I, I don't know what the definition of loser is. Um, I, I, I understand what our social definitions of, of losers are. Um, people who don't maybe make as much money as, uh, as, as, as uh, would sustain uh, the, the kind of lifestyle you see in the, in the glossy magazines, or people who don't project an image of, of toughness and masterfulness in, in whatever they're doing. I understand that those are the cultural definitions of of being a loser versus being a winner, but uh, I, I have to say that in my own heart of hearts and whenever I get close to someone else's heart of hearts, those aren't the rubrics at all of what winning and losing is all about. and And in fact, winning and losing sort of lose their meaning as terms when I get close to the heart of the matter in myself or or in another person I mean I've known hugely successful people who in, in worldly terms, successful in terms of money and public image who were profoundly sad and lost inwardly who felt a variety of things including the idea that life had been nothing but a prolonged stress test or that nobody really saw them as they were. Um, Thomas Merton, who was, I think, very insightful about these things, said, so many people live lives of self-impersonation. And if you want my ultimate definition of a loser, I guess, if if that's the term I have to use, I think a loser is a person who on the day of his or her death looks back and says, I never showed up here with my true self, and my chance to do that is over. Um, that w- That's the mm-hmm. kind of thing that seems to me ultimately to be loss. Um, I'm, again, at age 70, and I, I I don't think that I was have always been thinking this way in my life at a younger age, I probably was more influenced by cultural images than I am right now, but at age 70, um, I do not think that on the day I die, which is a day that one can sort of see with increasing clarity as one ages, I do not think that on the day I die I'm going to be asking, uh, did I make enough money, did I write enough books, did I get good enough reviews? Did I sell enough stuff? I think I'm going to be asking a much deeper question about, did I do whatever I did by my best lights? And and did I do it in a way that on balance was more life-giving for myself and other people than it was death dealing? Again, I don't think there's any perfection in that. I've Done things in my life that, looking back, I regard as death-dealing for myself, or and/or for someone else. Usually both at the same time. And I have to embrace that as part of who I am, and include it in this sort of ultimate calculus of meaning, which is again part of what I mean by wholeness. But I, I just can't, I can no longer think within the cultural rubrics of um, winning and losing. Uh, one of my favorite stories, Tammy, as you know, is the story of the woodcarver from Shuang Tzu, and Shuang Tzu being this 4th century B.C. Uh, Taoist teaching master, and uh, the book in question being the way of Shuang Tzu, from which this wonderful story called The woodcarver is taken. And it's basically the story of a person doing extraordinary, beautiful work. And to focus on just a small part of the story, when he's asked, how do you do the amazing things you do in the carving of wood, he talks about receiving a command from the prince and having to go into a period of meditation, really, of withdrawal, of inner settling... So that he can, and I quote him here, move beyond all thought of gain and success, or to put it in these words, winning and losing. Um, the Taoists were very big on the notion, and they have a story about this: that if an archer is shooting for a prize, he misses the target. and And I think that I think that it's by moving beyond those those categories of winning and losing, that we come closer to the heart of the matter. Now, in a way, I think that that puts a different lens on the the very situation that you just described. Um, I certainly understand, um, from my own limited experience as a person kind of running his own business, I understand in a small way what it is to have to meet deadlines and make good decisions under pressure and all of that. and I, I can barely imagine what that's like when you're responsible for a corporate setting and the jobs of a hundred people and um, a lot of marketing and, and output that needs to happen. So in that situation, I'm sure as there are in, as is true of my own life, there are times when you need to make a call, out of your own best judgment and years of experience um, without sitting down and reaching consensus with everyone else you work with. And then there are probably other times when if you don't sit down and work something through, um, you're pulling the rug out from under yourself and, and the whole enterprise. So the, the point I'm making is very simple there would be a variety of reasons for for doing one or the other of those things that would seem to me at least to be a whole lot better than trying to avoid being a loser Mm -hmm. there'd be some higher norm by which one would make the decision about do I on this day make a hard call that no one else seems to want to make or seems to understand Or do I, on this day, in this situation, continue to explore and talk? Because the inner teacher tells me that's what I need to do. So I'm not resisting the notion that sometimes we need to make a call. I talk glowingly about democracy's capacity to hold tension, but there are a thousand times a day when somebody needs to make a decision and if they don't, a lot of folks are going to suffer. So I'm not resisting the notion that we need to operate in various modes. But, as, a, as I said, I think there are better reasons for doing that than winning yeah. or losing. Now,
0: now, you say it's the inner teacher that can help the leader make the call when necessary. W- what do you mean by the inner teacher?
1: Well, that's a great mystery, isn't it? Um, because all of the spiritual traditions, I think all of the wisdom traditions, ultimately rely on and and call upon at their best some seed of true self that is planted within the human being, the, the psyche, the soul, identity and integrity. It goes by different names because nobody knows its true name sometimes the best one can say when pressed as to what are you talking about, well it's the being and human being this this place within ourselves that that's very quiet that reaches very deep, that is so easily layered over by all kinds of things um, including what the woodcarver would call an obsession with gain and success by the by the noise that's around us all the time and that gets into us a lot as well, the static not only on the airwaves, but in our own egos and minds. So the inner teacher, I think, is, is a place that every human being has, but that it takes discipline to get to. Um, or to allow, better better, better said, to allow it to get to you. And that discipline, I think, is, is a lot about, about the spiritual practices that are recommended by many traditions in many different ways that have to do with, with quietude, um, with a certain kind of disengagement or withdrawal that doesn't mean abandoning your daily life but that means standing somewhere in your inner landscape that is out of the reach of your ego, at least for a while. The ego that wants to look good, uh, the ego that wants to measure up to, to other people's expectations, and instead going to that place in your inner landscape where you feel more deeply grounded in your own truth and, and more deeply called to your own path in life. So it's a hard thing to talk about, and yet it's it's a hard thing to talk about because it eludes language. And yet I think it's one of the most important things for us to keep pointing toward with this language which always falls short of, of really naming it. Um, for a lot of people I know, it's the voice they hear when they wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning wondering why they did this or that or said this or that or how they got on this or that path that seems not at all right for them. It's a voice that easily disappears when you go back to your to your routine the next day and are surrounded by all these reinforcements that trigger your anxieties um, that got you... In a pickle in the first place. So it's a place that the wisdom traditions, all of them, I think, have always known about, and that different people find different paths to. Uh, for some, it's walking in the woods. For some, it's spiritual reading. For some, it's prayer and meditation. For some, it's sitting with an anamkara, a, a true friend, a friend of the soul, who really sees who you are and helps you see that, too. That's probably as close as I can come to saying what that phrase means to me at the moment.
0: One of the interesting things to me is what's happening during periods of your life when you can't access the inner teacher. Mm -hmm. For somebody who has times in their life when they can, and then suddenly it's like, no clarity. Mm -hmm. I have to make a decision, and there's no inner teacher voice that I can really... Distinguish clearly
1: Yeah, for me, I mean I'm very Acquainted with that in my own life I don't know how it, that feels to you But for, for me it's kind of like um, The cycle Of day and night You know, and under the Noonday sun you can find your way through The world pretty easily But if you're out in the forest at night <laughs> uh, It's kind of Scary and you're stumbling around And yet one thing you learn Over time is that we need that alternation of light and darkness um, to help us know what both look like. Without the contrast, we'd be even more lost than we are. And so, I, I, I think that, I think that the complexity and confusion of life, the, the tragic gap that we talked about, the the impulse toward perfection that we have in ourselves, that will never be fulfilled. All of these things can lead us down down blind alleys um, in, into places of profound lostness. And um, I've, I've been in those places a lot in my life. It, it's not a place that you value while you're there. But in my case, at least, I can look back on those times and, and realized that those lost times were some of the most important schools of the Spirit in my life because I was profoundly reminded of what it's like not to have light, not to have guidance. And I was my search for a way back to the light, back to guidance, was, was deepened and in, and in some way disciplined by those times of profound lostness. I mean, I find it very interesting in myself that I need these alternations, I need these oppositions, I need these contradictions in order to to find a straight path.
0: You said disciplined, that you would come back from these periods of times with a more disciplined approach. What do you mean by that?
1: i think i would look back on those periods of lostness and realize that they had precursors that that something had slipped in me prior to getting lost so that it was like being out uh... in the woods with a compass and just deciding oh i can do without this for a while and a few days later realizing that i had no idea where i was and i had no idea where i had left the compass So. The, the precursors in my life would have to do with not only with the falling away of certain disciplines such as silence and reflection and soul talk with an anamkara, close friend of the soul, uh, times when I've let things like that go, but they would also, these, these precursor times in my life would also have to do with with buying in once again to certain illusions about myself and my powers and um, my privileges and rights that took me down paths that, that were just cross-grained to my own truth, to my own soul. As you know, Tammy, because we've talked about these things before and I've written a lot about them, part of my journey has been with clinical depression. And I've been fascinated with a a relatively new stream of evolutionary biology in, in which scholars, researchers, are putting forward the notion that clinical depression is actually an evolutionary adaptation that was designed originally to keep human beings from pursuing a path that they were incapable of successfully or ultimately negotiating, one of the features of clinical depression is that you simply run out of energy, you, mm-hmm. you run out of, of willpower, you run out of steam, and the notion that some evolutionary biologists have put forward is that this is nature's way of telling you to turn around, go back up that path to the, to the main trail where you first got lost and find a road that you can walk. And I must say that some of my experiences with depression fall exactly into that category, where the precursor condition is getting crosswise with my own truth related to the falling away of some of these disciplines, like sitting with a friend who helps you tell the truth about yourself. And the school of the spirit was, was this profound reminder that i got in the lostness that that i didn't want to go there again if i could possibly avoid it so a kind of heightened awareness i think comes out of some of these experiences about the practices the disciplines whether those are certain ways of meditating certain seeking out certain people to talk to or the more subtle practices like Noticing when it is that, that it's your ego illusions about yourself that are driving a decision or an action rather than a deeper layer of your own truth. Noticing those things and reclaiming them is what I mean by, by disciplines and practices.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, Parker, I had the joy of spending three days with you in a studio in madison when we recorded the soundstreet program the undivided life and you shared with me some about your experiences with clinical depression as part of that recording and afterward i i developed a a kind of theory and i want to try it on you and see what you think mm-hmm. because you know i've i've now talked to and recorded hundreds of different spiritual teachers and i was so moved by the time we spent together and your warmth and brilliance. And I thought, you know, Parker received his initiation, if you will, initiation into full humanhood through depression. I'd never met anybody who had had that experience before, meaning I've met people who have practiced on retreat for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks a year for decades, and just different kinds of spiritual practitioners. But I'd never met somebody who I thought, this person was initiated into the mysteries of life through depression. Mm. That was the theory I I developed. I'm Mm. curious what you think about that.
1: Well, first of all, thank you for for honoring my experience by mirroring it back to me. And I think you know that I value those days we spent talking in Madison um, as much as you do. They were very evocative for me, and they they made me think a lot too. Um, I'm glad for that mirroring back. There's nothing in it that sounds false to me. At the same time, I think I'm maybe one of the, would be the last person to know <laughs> where I am on the on the full humanness scale, or or how it was that I got there. And of course, as I think anyone would do when asked to a wonderful question like that, or having such a wonderful mirror held up, uh, I I quickly think of of many other streams that have, tributaries that have fed the stream of my life that that I would say have also, you know, contributed to the initiation uh, or to that.
0: Well, of course, but there is one comment you made. Which was how, in your third bout with depression in your 60s, you knew yourself as, quote unquote, "the darkness.":
1: Right, I, I remember that. And Not I remember your response. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember saying that, that up until that point, I, and I've heard of a lot of other people do this too, had, had talked about depression as being lost in the dark. And it was after coming out of my third depression that I realized, no, that's an inadequate description of the experience. I had actually become the dark. And I remember you telling me later that, that one of your great teachers, had, in, I believe, the Buddhist tradition, had said that becoming the dark was the goal of practice.
0: Well, becoming the dark, becoming the void, becoming the light—all mm-hmm. equivalent in a certain sense. But that sense of sort of total mm-hmm. vastness.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I I think in that in that sense of initiation, I, I would absolutely affirm what you said. As I said when we were together in Madison, what what remains profoundly mysterious to me is how and why it is that some people are able to hold that experience that allows them to find all the rest. The light, for example, that you just named, mm-hmm. while other people remain lost there, um, even to the point of taking their own lives. So there's a kind of you know, there's a sacred mystery around all of that that I'm quite certain will will remain mystery for me. But yes, in that sense that was my initiation.
0: Now this interview series, Parker, is called Insights at the Edge, and you mentioned here as you're 70 years old now, or turning 70, that there are certain creative tensions that are alive in your world now, that you're working with. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what those are.
1: Well, some of them are, are um, personal and some of them are um Intellectual. Um, and vocational.
0: I'd love to hear it all.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the somehow they all weave together. Well, let me just first of all talk about a, a wonderfully creative tension for me, and I think this will this one will indicate um, how how positive that word tension is in, in certain respects in my life. Um, my wife and I are about to begin a. a, a four, four-and-a-half-year journey with my 18-year-old granddaughter, who will be moving in with us um, to start her trip into and through college, for which we are her her sponsors and, and primary support. And she'll be living with us, which is not exactly what one expects to be doing as one enters the decade between 70 and 80, which is to be helping in this stage of life to companion a, a young adult on her journey into the world of full adulthood as one companion, one, one's own children at that age so many years ago. But it, what's come to me so powerfully about this as a creative tension is that while this is going to pose some challenges for us, like how late are you staying out when... when When can we expect you home? When can we stop worrying about how you are and where you are? All of those questions that that we thought were behind us. Um, At the same time, I can't think of any better way for a person to take the journey of this next decade, if, if I'm given that much, a decade in which I think many elders start sort of turning in on themselves, I can't think of any better way to take it than in the company of a very bright, uh, very engaged, very vivacious and kind 18-year-old who can sort of remind you what spring is like um, even as you enter the the late fall or early winter of your own life. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's something that I regard as a wonderful creative cutting edge of tension in a positive sense in my own life. On the intellectual and, and vocational front, um, one of the things that that I'm finding happening to me is more public exposure than I've had in the past for the writing and speaking that I've done, and a lot more pressure, as it were, from the outside world for me to say this or that about this or that. And, and at age 70, um, a sort of two-edged um, situation that I'm still trying to figure out. On the one hand, a lot of personal awareness that even though I've, I have some sort of public voice, um, there's still a lot that I don't know very much about. <laughs> and and on which I don't want to pretend to have anything important to say. So there's this, on the one side, this sort of, I think, appropriate humility that comes with age of realizing what one doesn't know and what one's limits are. My, My dad used to, who was a very kind and generous man, the harshest thing I ever heard him say about anyone was he described a a fellow we all knew as he's a a humble man because he has a lot to be humble about and I sort of feel, feel that way myself on the other side of that tension pulling in the other direction That was a very early sign in my life of, of my social, political interests, which eventually, a few years later, really came out in a book called The Company of Strangers, about the renewal of America's public life. And um, then as time went on, became engaged with the Quakers, where I learned more about the inner journey in a community that also... Um, cares very much about political and social issues. And, and as years went by, I focused my work more and more on education and community. And now I'm feeling a great need to return more explicitly in my writing to the political arena. So as a person who, who feels that despite the election of Barack Obama, which I personally celebrate and desperately want to see succeed, I am a person who, not alone I, I think, in in believing that this democracy of ours, this very fragile and unfinished experiment in democracy, uh, continues to be at risk. Um, I think there are all kinds of forces in our society that don't want to engage in the creative tension holding that we were, we've been talking about for the last hour or so, and instead, have some sort of totalitarian wish dream to get them out of town uh, whoever they are while mm-hmm. while we take charge um, they don't like pluralism they don't like diversity, they don't understand creative conflict it makes them very nervous and they want to run the show their way well, those are impulses that threaten democracy and since I know a little bit about how democracy works and a little bit more about the inner journey I'm launching out on I think writing a book about the inner work we need to do to recover lives as citizens which is the only way I know to renew a democratic system is through citizen engagement, citizen commitment citizen energy and citizen activity. And I'm, I'm especially interested in what I call citizenship in the pre-political layer of our society, the public life, not in so much in the formal institutions of government, important as they are, but in that substructure of democracy that that consists of families and neighborhoods, and religious communities and educational institutions and voluntary associations and city parks and public squares and life on the streets, that that rich mix of stuff that makes democracy possible, that allows citizens to have a collective voice that can be amplified, uh, to be heard by governments that are often hard of hearing, and that also provides a buffer to protect private lives from being invaded by uh, massive political powers. If people want a quick take on why the public life is important, as I've just described it, um, simply look at a totalitarian society and realize that there is no public life worthy of the name in those places. Um, You can't gather on street corners, you can't Mm -hmm. attend rallies, you can't in many places go to churches or synagogues or mosques. Um, You simply have to live a private life which is easily manipulated by massive centralized power. So I want to write a book about the the root system of citizenship in the inner life, which is where I think everything takes its roots that human beings do. Terry Tempest Williams, a writer I admire very much, has a great line which she goes on to elaborate, but the line is simply this The human heart is the first home of democracy. And Mm -hmm. I believe that to be profoundly true, and I want to write a book that takes that as a starting point and tries to be constructive about how we might uh, help folks develop the habits of the heart that will help our democracy reclaim itself
0: wonderful you you know as we end our conversation Parker I just want to go back to the very beginning actually which was asking you this question about somebody who is working for money and feels distanced from their true passions and their what they really want to be doing and you know looking at somebody like you at age 70 who's really crafted a life where the soul and role, to use your words, are aligned, but how that that life, the undivided life, if you will, was uh, wrought through the the hard work of your life. Do you know what I mean? It's not like there's some simple answer, Mm. and how it has related to not just the personal, but as you say, to the social and political, when each one of us looks at whatever the challenge might be that we're facing, especially a challenge like this about our... Our um, our work life that you know there's there's a lot packed into that one discovery for any given person.
1: Oh, very much so, and I I, it's the work of a lifetime I think, and and you know we have we have so many stories among friends and and people more famous than that of of folks who who found ways over the years to keep doing what they really cared about in ways that either greatly enriched a, a life that the other part of which was a day job <laughs> or in which became work, which grew into work that became their day job so th- there's a lot of, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of work involved in taking this journey and, and there's a curious paradox here for me, which is that there's a there's one level on which we have to relax with trust into the ocean of life, knowing that it will buoy us up, despite how, how rough it, that ocean can get sometimes. And then there's another level of life on which we have to paddle like hell, you know, to, to turn the boat into the wind before it tips. The, the paradox of working and not working of effort fullness and effortlessness of powerfulness and powerlessness that i keep coming back to that as, as something where we can't where we don't want to slight either part we don't want to forget or ignore either pole of of the paradox so for me as best i understand my journey there has been a lot of hard work. There's been a lot of midnight oil burned over writing and rewriting and rewriting and crafting and recrafting and recrafting, going out and presenting something and having it get knocked down and then coming back and realizing I needed to say it better or say it truer or say it differently, and then back to the drawing boards. So there's there's been all of that, but there's also been a trusting that Not everything that I did, not by a long shot, had to make money right now, although I did need to make money right now, and finding ways to do that that were at least within the broad reach of my own integrity. Maybe not the deepest desire of my soul, but within the reach of my integrity. So I think it's so many both-ands that it's, it's hard to count the ways
0: Thank you, Parker. It's wonderful to talk to you again, as always.
1: Thank you, Tammy. Great to be with you this way.
0: This program has been brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Please visit us at SoundsTrue.com and experience our award winning audio programs for yourself. Programs that embrace the world's major spiritual traditions, as well as the arts and humanities, embodied by the leading authors, teachers, and visionary artists of our time. With every title, we strive to preserve the essential living wisdom of the author, artist, or spiritual teacher. Not only will you receive information, but you will receive the essential quality of a wisdom transmission between a teacher and a student. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com